You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we celebrate the life and career of one Timothy Dalton by taking a look at a film that absolutely rocks. It's 1980s Flash Gordon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Bondzilla Podcast, uh, a very exciting edition of the Bondzilla Podcast. I am Nick. I'm Will. Every episode is exciting. Yes, but I'm particularly excited for, for this one in particular. Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, everybody, welcome back. Bond episode this week, inching ever closer to No Time to Die. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm really curious to see what the lead up to the to this movie is because I've actually I'm now on team I have no idea what like what it takes to get people interested in movies on mass anymore. It's, like, it's, I, I, it's like, such it, a it's, difficult it's, thing to do. It, it has I think officially become a crapshoot at this point. With Bond, it's very interesting because I really it, it's hard to really gauge. You know what people think about you know the end of the Craig era and this whole thing about it's like we people do people actually know you know because it's like we kind of know like oh it's the end of the Craig era sure but like even the marketing has like been kind of like yeah it's kind of said that but not particularly Um, and so it's like do what do people think do people just think it's another Craig movie is this like do people have people thought that Craig's been here too long. You know, it's does anybody a, have any passionate opinions about this bond? Right, because at all, it's I also think it's more I mean, of the question. It's like Skyfall and Spectre have, were both, you know, hugely successful films. Like Skyfall, obviously, was a billion dollar movie, um, and then Spectre did not hit the billion mark, but still, relatively speaking, basically almost hit it. So it still did well. Maybe a little bit of a diminishing returns, but still did very well. So it's not like the movies have just been like, oh. They haven't made money. They've definitely made the money. And I mean, Skyfall and Spectre are the two biggest Bond movies in terms of box office ever made uh, within the, you know, especially within the current blockbuster era we live in. Because it, it's going to be one of two things. I, I think we've kind of have a grasp on like how this movie is being marketed thus far. Yeah. And, and it kind of seems and, like mean, it's being marketed as just another Bond movie. Right. But it's also like to be, to be fair, it's also that they've gone very big sort of on, on the market. I mean, like. It's a Bond movie that had a Super Bowl commercial. Like they're not skimping. Sure, yeah, but the yeah. thing is, like, they're not skimping on pushing it. And that's no, always no, kind of the I, thing is like because even like yeah, Skyfall Inspector definitely had that, but they they felt like more okay. It's just here's the next Bond movie. Whereas it feels like they're trying to make this like a big deal, even if they're not explicitly saying why it's a big deal. I just think we, this will be the biggest test of just how immediate is the interest mm-hmm. for James Bond. Yeah. I mean, but there, that's a lot of discussion for a a more Craig themed episode, right? And right. we are not doing. Well, a that's Craig- why I was trying to I was trying to jam pack actual Bond, Bond stuff, yeah. in the beginning. Well, because the this episode is very much 
not Bond. Yeah, but it's we do have a couple. It involves bond, a Bond, and we have a couple more Bond connections within the movie. Yes, itself. we do. I yeah, we do actually. That. Um, but I'm I was very excited. I said this is a very exciting episode of the Bondzilla podcast because we get to talk a little bit more about my boy Timothy Dalton, uh, and a uh, movie that he is featured in, and basically. And we'll talk about it. A movie that really signified his true beginning as a a Hollywood actor in some ways. Um, so we are talking about the 1980 movie Flash Gordon, uh, the infamous Flash Gordon. And our our rest of our little preamble, our little uh, pre production stuff, we're going to be splitting. Just talking a little bit more in depth about Timothy Dalton's life, his 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 style as an actor, and kind of what led him up to this role. And then we'll talk a little bit about the production. Of Flash Gordon. So I think that is probably the key to kind of get into all this stuff is that why this movie for this podcast and the big connection being that of Timothy Dalton. Um, So I think that is the best. And to kind of recap uh, my feelings on Timothy Dalton, like I I like Timothy Dalton a lot. Um, And I don't know where, I actually don't know where he stands on my kind of like my bond list um i always say that i like him in the in the beginning of that first one Mm -hmm. that he was in i love him but just speaking about timothy dalton as an actor like timothy dalton is one of those he's excuse me he's one of those people where if you just had the definition of actor and you had to put like like a like a picture next to it like I, I just feel like he just looks like an actor. Yeah. <laughs> like he just, or like even like, cause like, I guess like for lack of a better term, just a movie star. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and not a movie star in the way of like Tom Cruise being like an action leading, like doing all of his stunts yeah. movie star, just kind of like in that, like that, that period of movies where you're just like, where like you just want that rugged man with the good looks and the charm, and then you put him in a lead role. And the like, the kind of like, I just get the image of like when the studio head is just like, we need, we need somebody for the lead picture, we need somebody to bring everybody in. And then like Timothy Dalton walks in, it's like, that's that guy. It's yeah. the guy was literally chiseled and made to, to be I, in the movies. Yeah. Timothy Dalton for me, like it really did start my kind of fascination with him was very much like basically from him just being the guy who did two Bond movies. Mm-hmm. And I've, 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 those movies have just, I've always taken me in. And I think over the course of this podcast, I mean, Living Daylights has always been a favorite of mine. Um, and then on this watch of License to Kill for the podcast, I really did appreciate it. And it kind of landed in my top 10, just I think for just a very, I, I, don't, I wouldn't expect everybody to have it in their top 10, but it was just kind of a personal, like, it just hit me on this watch. But I think it's, and, and I think it's, I'll save a little bit more thoughts to Dalton when we actually get to discussing his performance in this movie. Um, but I've always just really been interested in just his career because he's someone who, I mean, we'll get into it. He's a, like, he's one of those people who's a Shakespearean trained actor. Right. And yet will go all in in an Edgar Wright movie. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, he, there's such a very much like his whole career just like the roles he chooses is so all over the place you know he's doing theater he's doing shakespeare and then also doom patrol you know right. it's just like i i'm very just interested oh, he's, just, and, he's that type of guy and, who just feels like he enjoys acting and i think 
I really dig that about him. And makes fun of the archetype of by voicing that in Toy Story 3. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, where, where, he, yeah he, where he he plays and yeah. very much leans, leans, leans into, into that. that yeah. and, I, and I think... Mr. Pricklepants. That is the biggest thing that I would kind of like uh, sum it all into. It's just there is an immediate theater and screen presence that is... Un, it's really undefinable when it comes yeah. to some, somebody like Timothy Dalton. Like, I just haven't disliked him in a movie. Yeah, like it's I just agree. he 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 just is like he's such a natural fit yeah. on, on the screen. Um, and and to the point that like, and again, I I don't know where he stands out um as Bond, but I just have loved it. like him and the Rocketeer. I think yes. is, is excellent. Yeah, he's really good. It's, it's it's a masterclass almost of like that type of acting in that type of movie because mm-hmm. in in some ways because I don't know like because I don't know and maybe we're about to get into this like like in a weird way he's not like is he like that big like get like in terms of like like somebody like if you got like somebody like Christopher Plummer in a movie yeah. like that can, can be considered like or like a like a Max von Sydow or something like that like that's like a that, that's yeah. like a big get where you're like oh man like veteran veteran actor but like for some reason Timothy Dalton I wouldn't say like quite fits in that role but he is one of those actors where you if you put him in something like The Rocketeer, if you put him in something like an like an Edgar Wright movie or or something like this in like the movie we're talking about today, there's just a certain acting legitimacy yeah. that he brings in into it. And I think it has something to do with that like more Shakespearean theater background mm-hmm. and that willingness to like not forgo any uh any of the talent and the skill uh to yeah. it. And it's because he doesn't, he also doesn't really play like a bigger character in any of these examples I'm given. He's no. just like kind of like just performing the role and just giving it his all. And, and like, it's a commitment. It just, I yeah, think it's the commitment. He's committing to the role in a way that is just it's super. Yeah, effective. no matter what he's doing, whether he's in Flash Gordon, The Rocketeer, Bond, Doom Patrol, whatever he's doing, like he's committed to presenting it as if he was like. Doing Macbeth or doing Henry VIII, and you know what? And and maybe you know I'm tripping over myself saying it, but maybe that's what it is. It almost feels like he's treating each and each and every one of these roles as if he's getting one of those Shakespearean yeah. theater roles. Yes, it really does. I, feel I, that I, way. That's what I love about the yeah, dude. I yeah. mean, that's what I really love about him. Um, but I think really what it is, I, I and I think really looking more into his career, I I kind of feel like there's. The, the the way his career went was is just makes a lot of sense. Um, so just to talk a little bit about the history of Dalton, it's not going to be as in depth as like we did with Connery, just because Connery is such a big figure that like there's so many stories about him. Right. Whereas Dalton is very much like the career was the career, the life was the life. So he was born uh, in Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his father was like an advertising executive who had fought in World War II. Um, but his family, his father's family especially, had had a history of vaudeville um, it, with British vaudeville. So his grandfather was a, a vaudeville actor. And even the grandfather's mother's side was also a vaudeville actor. But his father's family was very much into acting, liked acting, liked theater. Mother's side was not as much. Uh, Dalton kind of grew up as the oldest of five brothers and sort of took that um, kind of paternal role for his brothers, uh, while also being a very extremely bright 
young kid. Like, he was one of those people that went to, like, the highly educated schools, you know, kind of had the advanced classes, had an initial interest in stuff like science, but he um, sort of took, was took in, taken in, took it in, taken in by his, you know, his family's legacy of acting, his, his vaudeville grandfather, and eventually when he saw a performance of Macbeth at 16, that's when he decided that's what he he needed to do mm-hmm. so basically after that he uh after he saw that performance uh he dropped out of school and immediately joined a acting touring company um the uh national youth theater company um and then he also studied at the royal academy of dramatic art but he eventually dropped out of that school because he thought the teachers were too oppressive that they weren't letting him uh, express mm-hmm. his uh, his true acting talent. They thought it was you know he was a little bit too kind of controlled. Um, but basically, from dropping out, he immediately starts uh, touring with another Shakespearean company. That basically that company saw him has he had like an inherent kind of acting talent and and a passion for it. So they kind of brought him on board. Um, so the thing about Dalton that I've always in terms of looking up his history that I did find very interesting is the very much the fact that at an early stage in his career, so this is around like by the time he's kind of doing the true Shakespearean acting, it's like by basically 1967, 68. And he does a few kind of local British productions. He does one Italian production at this time. Um, Famously, as we kind of talked about earlier in the podcast, when, the Bond team was looking for another unknown to take over for Connery in um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. They approached Dalton because Dalton was noted as, as, as this young, fresh face within the theater community, someone who was making a name for himself in these Shakespearean productions. So, Cubby, at that point, that was when he wanted Dalton, and Dalton was just like, I'm too young. And it was around this same time that Dalton basically said, I'm committed to the theater. That's mm. what I want to do. Um, even though he did have few acting opportunities he did have one as well where he was able to successfully sue a production company for dropping him at the last minute out of his contract for no reason but it was kind of after that experience is like i want to kind of hone my skills a little bit more i think that things are kind of going too fast for me um so he committed to the theater for basically about a decade from around 1970 all the way until um 1978 when is 78 is when he kind of starts considering he does during that time period, he does a few BBC miniseries, BBC television series, just for some extra paychecks on the side, um, but still something that he could do on a weekend or do over the week and then still go back to his theater, um, you know, going between Shakespeare at the Royal Shakespeare Company and, you know, plays and adaptations of famous American plays and stuff like that. Um, but eventually in 78, he decides that he wants to kind of try out for this kind of film career again. Um, so he basically moves to America and, uh, and this is where I really feel like Dalton's career comes where it makes sense. Because the thing about Dalton as a film career is that he really does go between these kind of weirder roles for him and kind of back to the more traditional, like the, the high art, the Shakespeare, the, the costume drama type of thing. And so he does like a movie called uh, sex at in 1978 which is basically a musical where he plays the husband the much younger husband of like an 84 year old hollywood star um and so he'll do things that he really doesn't get a chance to do in the theater stuff like sex at flash gordon um 
Bond and Rocketeer were these kind of out there roles. And then he'll always kind of go back to doing a Shakespeare. But this is where I feel like Dalton's career really settles himself is that this could have been the part of his career where he really focused in on the big star making and Oscar nominated type of roles, kind of doing what Kenneth Branagh did and kind of just putting on his own Shakespeare things, you know, like Dalton is someone I was always surprised was never in one of those Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare movies because right. he was someone who was perfectly suited for that. But when you look at like when he's doing stuff like Flash Gordon, Brenda Starr, all this kind of weird stuff, and then still doing things like, you know, Wuthering Heights, you know, a Wuthering Heights adaptation here or there, or, you know, doing like a sequel to a TV sequel to um, Gone with the Wind. It really just feel like Bolt Dalton likes acting enjoys acting and enjoys roles that he doesn't get to do all the time especially in this era so i feel like that's where kind of dalton's role as an actor really gets settled because he is someone who's just going to do what's fun for him even if it's not like the biggest star making thing in the world because mm. i think we talked about earlier or in one of our deep dives we might have been like like why dalton never got that like big star and we just kind of talked about it himself and i really do think that it's just him being just himself in terms of his acting and in terms of the roles that he takes. And um, what's funny was that we, we talked about is that Flash Gordon and that role coming to him was really like his time to commit to being a film actor mm -hmm. because that was like, you know, maybe his second movie offer, probably his biggest movie offer ever, technically speaking, other than maybe um, uh, for... Uh, uh, Honor Master's Secret Service, and he was. Uh, Cobby did talk to him um, a little bit later in the '80s when Roger Moore first left the role, um, but Dalton didn't feel like he was taken seriously there. But 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 doing something as big, quote unquote, as Flash Gordon was really Dalton's kind of choosing moment of like, what direction do I go? Because it, you know, and he was still wanting to do theater. He still liked doing Shakespeare. He would do Shakespeare at any opportunity he would get. But that was like kind of the path, the crossing path. And he chose to do Flash Gordon. And that was basically the start, the true start of his his Hollywood acting career. Mm -hmm. So any general thoughts? No, I mean, that's I basically mean, like, it's like... I mean, as I was thinking about it, it, I'm just, I'm thinking about all the movies that I like him in, like, the most. Like, when I think about something like this or The Rocketeer, I, I'm thinking about what prompts, like, an actor of that background uh, to go into those type of roles. Because... The instant thing I see is that whereas I think that there is a certain uh, type of actor who may come from a similar background who looks at some of the more outlandish material that um, Dalton ends up in as, you know, maybe just something that they're doing for a job or maybe something that they'll just like do for, for fun every now and then. But when you look at something like, let's just take the Rocketeer so, you know, we're not delving into Flash Gordon too much. There is a level I could see of like a Shakespearean actor like kind of come into this role and into this world that does require a bit of and this is going to sound, you know, kind of eye rolling but uh theatricality. Right, cuz cuz in The Rocketeer for those who haven't seen it, you absolutely should. It is on Disney yeah. Plus. Um he plays like an Errol Finn type of actor. Um, who is eventually revealed to be a secret Nazi. Right. And it's interesting to hear him be in that position where he felt like he was constrained because the the last thing I would say, like he's not like a Nicolas Cage or something. Like no. he's not like a, 
going all out for it like right. you know and i wouldn't even call him like something in the lines of like a daniel day lewis where he's like creating like these big personalities yeah but you can tell that he definitely doesn't want to be subtle about his acting mm-hmm. like he loves the shakespearean like you are acting and yeah. it's like if you're the villain then you're gonna play a mustache twirly mean mugging villain if you're a robin hood type character you're gonna swashbuckle that sword and you're going to like uh like uh, right. be be like a big romantic and everything and so it's interesting that is kind of the the, the connection i see between mm-hmm. his background to what leads him in movies right like and this. i think you even see it especially in the living daylights and, and and even like kind of the more revenge stuff in license to kill you definitely feel him like you know eating it like not that he's chewing the scenery but definitely eating up that opportunity to kind of like yeah act yeah he he, he and definitely brings something he, to bond he likes that little bit of room that he can not go over the top with it but he doesn't like to see, he seems to not want to be subtle about any of his choices like he he wants like he definitely i think and this is me just reading into him without any way of knowing this but he doesn't seem to be afraid of performing for the audience like you know there's not even he's not i wouldn't even say he's acting he is performing like even if you look at something more recent like like uh like hot fuzz yeah which he's, he's fantastic in fantastic in and spoilers for Hot Fuzz, but he ends up being one of the many bad guys in yes. the movie. He's clearly one of the bad guys from the moment you yeah. meet him. And I don't think the movie nor his performance makes any, like, uh, doesn't take any moves to hide that mm-hmm. from him. But you can just tell that he's eating that up. He's eating that, the, the, the mean mugging to, like, the, to the screen, the, the snide smiles to the main characters. So there's a level of, I think, performance that he likes that I think he gets from his, uh, his, uh, his theater sensibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's just, again, like I said, um, I think he's, I mean, I think it's like his distinctive voice helps as well. Like it just, it just feels Shakespearean. Like when he, when yeah. he talks and, and you know, he rocks a, a, mean mustache he does too. he yeah. does in, he, he, in many roles he yeah. does he's a very good mustache man and i'm just i just i just he, he's one of my guys like yeah. he's one of my actors yeah, i like I him just, i like I, him a lot really just anytime because i think it's also the thing that you don't really see him in everything you know it's not one of those things where he has like a million roles lined up he really does kind of select his things like but like when he, he's, he's selective but i can also see why because i think that like I, I feel like that both filmmakers, producers, and audiences can be they they either want one thing or the other. Like I feel like they naturally gravitate to somebody who is being like super, uh, you know, sincere and like you know a little bit contained. Or if they want like a big performance, they want to see an over the top performance. Like I think when you get somebody like, I like I feel like um if you look at somebody like um Dalton. Uh, you know, I don't think people give the credit. It's almost like, in a way, too subtle for some people. I think that a lot of people can look at Dalton and be like, well, he's not really doing anything. He's just being Dalton. And they're not seeing the nuances of him. Like, well, no, his performance, his acting is just performing a little bit mm-hmm. and not going over the top with it. So it, it makes sense to me why, you know, he's not even thought about in the in the in the realms of like big popular actors either yes. so it, it's not that much right. of a surprise but it's just like he's someone that i really just do anytime he there's an opportunity to get him in the movie or to see him in the movie or a show 
Um, like I haven't watched Doom Patrol specific, specifically. Like I haven't watched the whole series, but I have looked into like some of his scenes just because I just enjoy watching him act, and right. he's just one of my guys. So I was very excited to, to to talk a little bit about Dalton, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about his performance in the movie. But we do got to talk about our movie for the today. movie itself. It's Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. Uh, so this was a first time watch. Yes, for both of us. Uh, it's but, actually so I will say right now the reason that it shows this I knew from the beginning of this podcast that I wanted to do look into other things from uh, the Bond actors just to kind of get a little bit more breadth of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done it with Connery and now Dalton is the second one we're, we're doing it with, and I chose Flash Gordon specifically because we've seen The Rocketeer before. Mm-hmm. It was really between those two movies we could have done basically Dalton kind of earlier in his real true Hollywood career with this movie or. Like what, you know, the movie that Dalton was doing when he when he could have been in his third Bond movie because that third Bond movie was supposed to come out the year the Rocketeer ended up coming out. But since we had seen the Rocketeer and I had never seen Flash Gordon and um, I was very eager to check it out, I thought it would be a fun little different thing for us to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those movies. I think other than actually seeing it, like its cultural impact. Yeah. Like, of course, we knew about it's yeah. been parodied in so many movies you know, right queen song and mm-hmm. i think it was at that point where i can't speak for you but there was probably a level of like we've seen all the imagery right for it and yeah. i'd seen enough of it i mean where like, i knew the pieces I mean, of even it before we get into production like flash gordon is like one of the cult movies to end all cult movies it's like flash gordon like rocky horror picture show or like the things you think about when you think of like a cult classic mm-hmm. like and and flash gordon just does have it, and we'll talk about it. Has a very makes a mark on, on oh, yeah, it makes yeah, a mark yeah. on its audience. So yeah. So anyway, uh, so get it, so the movie itself. So uh, obviously yeah. starts off as old timey serials. Yeah. So uh, the original. So we'll talk about a little bit about the Flash Gordon, obviously production now, and the origins of it are the 1930s comic strip, right? The comic Flash strip. strip. Yeah. Uh, so it was started um, basically as uh, by the. King Feature Syndicate, one of the major comic strip, newspaper comic strip publishers in that era in the 30s, uh, they were looking for a competition, uh, something to compete with the very popular Buck Rogers uh, series of comic strips, which is, again, another kind of famous thing, and that that gets eventually parodied as Duck Dodgers, which is kind of what people know that as today, mostly. Um, so they originally planned to actually adapt uh, John Carter of Mars to a comic strip, but then the rights with John uh, Edgar Rice, sorry, Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of get mixed up and they don't get the rights to it. So they create basically their own cosmic hero mm-hmm. in Flash Gordon. And then this was also during the heyday of that type of like a uh, hero, as right. it were, or those type of stories where it was like, you know, your um, obviously Flash Gordon, your Buck Rogers, your Tarzans, thing, mm-hmm. things like that. Right, and this was like, and, and and really, to be honest, it's like that eventually evolves into Superman, not right. not too ra- far around from here. Eventually, like all this sort of stuff, like the Flash Gordons, the Buck Rogers, eventually evolve into the the superhero comics that we kind of know and has yeah, evolved into it, the, to, to this day. Because it's interesting how, in a way, that those kind of become niche, and there's been like these attempts to make all of those type of characters like you know bring them back in the way that they were back then like we didn't like we had like a more recent like tarzan movie that was trying to yeah. like at least go back to those original those, roots of yeah, like the 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 edgar rice burroughs right yeah. um so it, so it is interesting that you're right there are the 
I mean, precursor to like superheroes, and the superheroes are the one that's stuck. Where like the these are right. kind of I mean, like the we're more also, niche ones. Again, we're not too far. We're really not that far removed from that John Carter movie, which is again the same sort of thing. But again, like another example where you know they took a stab at it and it didn't really right. Like and make it's an like impact. because it goes for a lot various of reasons for various but, reasons, yeah. but it's just that sort of thing. Uh, so the comic strip uh, actually runs for a very long time, starting in 1934, and runs daily pretty much all the way uh, until 1992. Uh, but you know you can still find reprints in some comics, and basically the plot of the comic was at that time the Flash uh, Flash Gordon, a uh, polo player from Yale University, uh, his uh, companion uh, slash girl that he meets slash girl that he falls in love with, Dale Arden, are eventually uh, basically forced into space by Doctor Hans Zarkov to face off with Ming the Merciless and his world, his mm-hmm. universe. Eventually, Gordon uh, starts stages of revolt uh, with many of uh, the inhabitants of Ming's empire, and the various adventures of that come to fruition. Mm. Uh, it then eventually does get turned into the movie serials, very much like fellow uh, companions Buck Rogers, Dick Tracy, Superman, all had their own kind of 30s film serials. Uh, and then the rights kind of bounced around all over the place in terms of its filmic rights. Um you know, there was kind of a 50s television series adaptation. There was kind of other little serials here and there. Um, but eventually, the rights in the 70s fall into one Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. Do you know, have you heard the name Dino De Laurentiis? I, I mean, you know, has a very much uh, infamous name in the King Kong uh, Godzilla realm yes. as well. Yes, because, uh, well, because it's, inter- it's very interesting um, because... Dino De Laurentiis is one of those like producer names. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those names that people know was a producer, right? It, but I do feel like Dino De Laurentiis kind of falls sometimes, or at least from what I kind of knew about him, kind of falls into that like Roger Corman type of producer, where people kind of perceive him as Dino De Laurentiis is one of those people that people know more about his failures than his successes mm. because. Dino De Laurentiis was an Italian film producer who eventually makes his way to America and was legitimately like someone who produced like five between his Italian producing career and his American producing career did like 500 movies like a huge amount of movies and he actually did like a number of notable um, uh, Oscar nominated films and like major motion pictures um, so you know he you know um, he basically does a lot of that stuff but he's kind of most noted for yes his king kong remake in the 70s dune he also produced dune um he would become a big proponent of doing horror sequels so he helped produce halloween 2 evil dead 2 Mm -hmm. that stuff like that produced barbarella all that sort of stuff so people kind of know him as like oh like these kind of big movies these big kind of splashy failures that sort of thing but yes he is most probably his name is most attached to this movie, Flash Gordon, and the '70s King Kong film, right? Um, they, that spawned like, um, like I, I believe more King Kong. Uh, yes, there was another. There, that, yeah. King Kong Lives, yeah. which was another sequel. Also, his production company did not make, but helped distribute Transformers: The Animated Movie. Yeah, that, that, that's that. I remember just the early days of watching that movie, just seeing that name. Yeah. Um. So, but but uh, De Laurentiis uh, picks up the film rights to Flash Gordon in the mid '70s, and he did actually have a couple suitors, uh, directors that were interested in uh, helping to direct a movie. Um. So 
De Laurentiis was very good friends with a famous um, uh, Italian auteur, mm-hmm. uh, Federico Fellini, uh, most probably famous for his film Eight and a Half and, and other films of that type. And uh, Fellini um, was very, actually very interested in producing kind of an Italian language version of Flash Gordon using De Laurentiis' rights, but the deal just never came together. Um, which, again, Fellini's one of those people is like, you know, he's an auteur. He's like eight and a half. He's like one of the greatest directors ever. And even he's kind of interested in kind of doing this kind of blockbuster mm-hmm. type of movie, which is even in that realm, would have that's what it would have been. And then most infamously, uh, George Lucas. Yes. Um, so this is probably the most famous connection yeah. to this whole business. So George Lucas, uh, in his early in his film career in the, in the mid-70s, was interested in doing a new version of Flash Gordon and heard that De Laurentiis had the rights and, and you know approached him to possibly make a deal to direct. Um, but Laurentiis wanted a little more creative control. Lucas wanted to do his vision for Flash Gordon mm-hmm. and the basically just there were, the negotiations were, were nothing. Uh, nothing really happened out of it. I wonder if anything happened to that George Lucas guy. Like, um, Well, you know, then... <laughs> George was like, well, I'll just make my own Flash Gordon. <laughs> and it's really funny, like, watching this and really, like, kind of looking into the serials. And you can really, and the serials and the comic strip, and you yeah. can really see how Star, Flu- Star Wars was kind of influenced oh, what? By, by, by stuff like Flash Gordon. Like, yeah. you really, even just seeing this, and, you know, it's very much like a different kind of thing, like this movie, in terms of Star Wars, but you can just see how all the tropes and all the elements that, like, Flash Gordon has definitely like appears in star wars Mm -hmm. yeah like even like the dynamic between like flash and dale you know you have like kind of this this empire and being the merciless and and, like you can even see like you know masked bad guys and and even like like like, you can see like how even both tarkin and vader really take their stuff from like people like me right like it's really interesting and then just like little things like kind of going into the world without explaining it too much or just like making just fabricating a completely yeah like fictional like world and universe like, and yeah, planets it's and definitely like, like that, that yeah. and so so lucas ends up doing that so de Laurentiis finally finds a director uh his first choice um and the first person that works on the movie is nicholas roeg um who was most noted f- at this time for his horror thriller don't look now uh, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, starring David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first one. They spent about a year in pre-production on it, um, but De Laurentiis was not happy with the direction. So De Laurentiis' whole thing is that he thinks it needs that kind of campy nature to work because it's just he just thinks the people of the late, late 70s aren't going to take us a straight-up adventure seriously i mean obviously star wars hasn't really come out at this point when they're developing this so he's just like they're not going to take it seriously so we need to kind of make this a little bit camp get a little bit bigger colorful kind of you know play to that aspect play to the more fun aspect of this world Mm -hmm. whereas rogue was very much more like kind of more doing it like straight laced um much more like kind of his other films had been if you you know you've seen don't look now i'm sure and it's Mm -hmm. just like this thing's like a little bit more dramatic a little bit more just kind of real uh, or natural um so then he kind of hops around to other directors he even considered hiring um sergio leone um but leone was i don't want to do that at all so eventually he gets a man named mike hodges 
Um, because if I remember in my little research of it that I looked up, that that direction was a sticking point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. when they Right from the directing to the casting, that there was quite a bit that didn't want to jump into the movie for that very reason. Right. right. Because it's like they just didn't love yeah. the campy so nature e- of it. Even the writer of the movie so mike hodges eventually directed and is mike hodges one of those guys he had like done things nothing really huge um just kind of a lot of this work and he took the job basically like this seems like an opportunity you know for me to do it uh and then the movie was written by lorenzo semples jr who we've actually talked about on this podcast before he wrote the original script uh for never say never again before he was basically let go by connery and uh the crew there um, so Semple Jr. Um, is is someone like we didn't really talk about him specifically on that episode. We kind of talked about a little bit about like him just writing and 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 kind of why he had, didn't it failed. But Semple Jr. is actually kind of a major name in the history of uh, screenwriting because he's known um, probably most known for doing some of the thrillers of the '70s, like The Parallax View and Three Days of Condor. But one of his biggest legacies is that he was one of the head writers on the 1960s Batman series. So Laurentis hired Semple Jr. and basically said, kind of do that Batman thing, but with Flash Gordon. And even Semple has kind of lowered his, his view on this in recent years and in recent interviews. But at the time, he was very much like, I'm doing this for the job. It's, you know, I'm doing it for the money, but... I don't think he's even he was like I don't think this funny direction is the direction you want to go. Flash Gordon is not a funny thing. It's right. it's more straight laced drama. Uh, but eventually, De Laurentiis is happy with that simple junior script. Um, he's happy with his director, and now he has to start casting. Uh, so of course he needs his Flash Gordon, and that's going to be Mister Sam J. Jones. So Sam Jones um, was a uh, was a a failed football star. Um, he had basic. Well, not necessarily he failed. He, his job at the time. Yeah, he, I was more laughing at the football star, yeah. the nature of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he basically like once he graduated college, he like played football for the Marines, moved to Seattle to try to try out for the Seattle Seahawks. Didn't work, but basically had kind of a day job as um during football season as part of their practice squad. Um, so he would just kind of do that on the side. And then basically the practice squad didn't, didn't make him a lot of money. So on the other side of things, uh, he would also do modeling, uh, most famous, most famously for himself. He did a, um, pseudonym, uh, modeling for Playgirl magazine, basically a nude modeling under a different name. Um, and eventually, you know, the, the look and the body eventually transitions him into a romantic comedy role in 1978. So the other two contenders for this role of Flash Gordon that De Laurentiis wants, first name, instant name that he wants to play Flash Gordon is Kurt Russell. That was the one I was like talking about. Because Kurt, yeah. Kurt Russell didn't want to do it. Yeah, for, Kurt Russell again. didn't want to do it. He's, uh, Kurt Russell didn't feel like the character had much depth to, to him in that the script that he had and didn't really like the direction of the film, so he dropped out. And then the other name that was considered was very early career, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, this was the point in his career where he was basically doing the thing where he would do movies because of his look, but everybody would dub him over because nobody could understand the Austrian accent. Um, 
So people like, you know, you have Hercules in New York around the same time. And that's very much infamously like a movie where he's Hercules in New York, but there's someone else completely doing the voice. Um, but Laurentis didn't felt like it's that Schwarzenegger was just too big and just too big of a look to be flash. And so he saw, um, the film 10 and then he saw the nude modelings that Sam Jones had done and basically mm-hmm. said, that's that's my Flash. That's our Flash. Uh, uh, Sam Jones did have to bl- dye his hair blonde for the film as well. Um, and it was one of those things where because Sam Jones was not really, didn't have an acting presence, quote unquote, um, the way that kind of De Laurentiis helped to kind of assuage that was to hire a bunch of Shakespearean type of actors and and big play theater actors to the roles. So that's where Dalton comes in, again, has that stationary background. Uh, Brian Blessed, who's also in the movie as, as the leader of the Hawkmen. Boss Nass himself. Boss Nass, Clayton um, from Tarzan. Um, he also very much a big Shakespeare guy. Max Mountain Sydow who is another one of our Bond connections because he played Blofeld in um, Never Say Never Again, Mm -hmm. uh, is the main villain of the movie. Um, The thing about Sidow's role um, is that the big Ming costume weighed over 70 pounds because there was so much to it. So he basically, to do the scenes in that big costume, basically only like minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. And even uh, for Brian Blessed, the Hawkmen could not sit down or could not comfortably sit down because of the wings um, basically would dig into them. So um, uh, as our leading lady, um, Melody Anderson, who plays Dale Arden in this movie, said that during the breaks and lunches, you would just see all the Hawkmen just laying on their stomachs, like reading or eating, <laughs> because that was like the only way they could get comfortable. Um, and I do want to mention too that we have another 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 bond connection uh, in uh, our third of the main Flash Gordon triumvirate mm-hmm. is uh, Hans Zarkov, who's played by Topol, mm-hmm. uh, who we had seen previously in um, For Your Eyes Only. And again, that was another thing where he was most known at that time as an actor for Fiddler on the Roof, that role that he would play many times throughout his career. So again, it was just kind of taking that theater experience and bringing it to the screen. And one other quick, not really known Bond connection is this was uh, an early extra role for uh, Robbie Coltrane. Oh, really? Uh, he was basically at the beginning of the movie. He's at like the uh, airfield when with the jet that that takes uh, Dale. Oh, and, okay, cool. Um, cool. Flash Jordan. So the th- what's really cool about just what I found out is that in terms of the adaptation. This is pretty much like the movie you see, other than kind of the more campy and colorful nature of it, the story-wise is pretty much the Flash Gordon story. Mm-hmm. Um, very much like the only real thing that's changed from kind of the traditional Gordon canon is the fact that instead of being a polo player, Flash Gordon is now a New York Jets quarterback. Flash Gordon, New York Jets. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but basically like, you know, the same things, Zarkov, Dale, uh, Flash, they're basically their interactions with each other are very much the same. The arc of uh, Dalton and Bless's characters and the Hawkmen are, are, are very much present in the original strip as well. Um, unfortunately, because of limitations to the um, 
the uh, budget of special effects. We did not get the shark people, um, <laughs> which is another major race within the Flash Gordon world. But pretty much like, again, the Hawkmen, uh, the Aboria people who Timothy Dalton leads, um, the whole relationship between Dalton's character and the daughter of Ming. Lizard um, men? Yeah. Uh, it's the, lizard men. The only character actually that was made up for the movie that's in the movie is um, the right hand man. This of guy's Ming. awesome. I was, uh, I was, oh man, I was, I was wondering if that was going to be the one. General Kleist. Yeah. Uh, so Kleitus. Kleitus yeah. or who does? Yeah. Who has a very George Sanders? You know, oh, like, like, I love like that guy. That guy's awesome. Um, but basically, like you know, the production was very much like it was a kind of cheaper production. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, it, because it was kind of like a American Italian yes. like co-production, right? Right. Because so, again, it's a De Laurentiis has his um, his connections with the Italian film industry. This is at the point that he had started an American production company, but still very much had his connections in Italy. Now, did they shoot it Italian style? Because I remember this, like from the little bit that I read upon it, was that that was. That 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 was the closest thing to any behind the scenes drama is that there was some difficulty working between like the American and like the right, Italian yes. guy. Because for those of you who don't know, uh, the Italians do it very differently, where they do not shoot um, with sound, right? Yeah, uh, and they actually are famously or infamously, depending on where you stand on it, known for uh, everything is dubbed over yeah. at the end of the day, so which I, I understand that the dubbing issue does become an issue yeah. uh, as we get into the movie, but I couldn't find out if they wholesale shot the movie that way. Um, it was a little bit more traditionally filmed, but there was still very much that element of like, well, if we don't get sound, we'll just do it later. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, sound was a big deal. Now I do know that there was a little bit more of a traditional American production on it, um, but the dubbing does come back in um, because at the end of production, Sam Jones uh, has a pay dispute mm-hmm. with um, De Laurentiis and, and there's a dispute about, you know, how much he's been paid, we should be paid more, all that sort of fun stuff. And uh, Flash, uh, Flash, uh, Sam Jones basically just leaves the production without dubbing any of his lines over. And the thing is, is that we don't really know who dubbed over his lines. Mm-hmm. And we actually, even Sam doesn't know how much of the voice acting in the movie is his and how much is mm. the dubbing. Mm. So there's very much like what what the actual performance is, that, but that kind of adds to the iconicness of the nature of the movie. And the last thing we should talk about is the soundtrack because that's another big yes. thing of the movie. Um, Probably the thing. Would you maybe the thing that's most famous about the movie? Yes. Or like, Probably the most thing that's most widely known about the movie. That was, I, is a good I way think, of putting it. Because I think there's other things within the people who love the movie that there's stuff that's equally as like lovable and famous about the movie. But in terms of a wide-reaching thing, um, well. To put it bluntly, the the film's soundtrack, the film's score, was composed by Queen, right? Uh, the band Queen. So this is, this is kind of so this is pretty much almost peak Queen, really. Um, you know, this is like them. They've already done um, stuff like uh, "We Will Rock You," "We Are the Champions." Have already been out at this point. Like this is kind of like Queen is one of the biggest bands in the world. And one of the f- other producers in Dino Dolentra's company had this idea of just like, well, Queen is like this huge band. We kind of are going for this really like 
cool vibe to the movie. If we got them to do the score, that would be fantastic. And and Queen, uh, this other producer approached Queen's manager. Queen's manager brought it up to Queen, and Queen was immediately like, "Yes, this is something completely different, completely new for us to do. Let's complete. Let's do it." So then the producer brings it up to Dino De, De Laurentiis, who doesn't know anything about Queen. And basically, like, so tell me more about these queens. Like, who are who are they? Oh yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> but basically, yeah, it's just essentially um, the entire score of the movie is composed by Freddie Mercury and Brian May of Queen, uh, and is all performed by them as well. Um, it, it's one of those things where you go into the movie, and even if you have a broader knowledge of the song, the song, the song Flash, yeah. that you know from Queen. Yes. Which has gone on to be one of their big songs. Um, is in the movie. But I don't think I was prepared by how intertwined it was in like that is legit not only the theme, but that is the music of the movie. Like all of those little bits, the flesh savior of the universe. Like that yeah. is that is peppered throughout the film in like action scenes and then like the score the the score that accompanies it is is, is great too but i don't think i was quite prepared mm-hmm. for how much it actually encompassed right. i just thought it was like a like the song like the of title the movie. song yeah. Like, yeah but i didn't know that like oh this is going to be like it's as it like what John Williams and his motifs are for Star Wars. Just the vibe and sounds of Queen are permeated throughout this film. Yeah, because basically they do kind of the score, the Flash theme permeates throughout the film. There's also the alternate battle theme, which is also known as the Hero, um, which has uh, a lyrical version of it. But that that kind of theme plays in the big kind of third act battle of the movie. Um, one thing of note I should mention, there is a thing where in the movie, a character, the character, a Brian Blessed character, the oh Hawkman, God. Yeah, this. says, well, who wants to live forever? <laughs> now, that is actually not a reference You're to right, the Queen right. song, Who Wants to Live Forever, because that song would not be written until Queen's second soundtrack album, for Highlander, it's still funny. It's still it's just one of those things. You've just been li- it, this movie's been blaring Queen this entire time. So then at one point when he's like, "Well, so, who wants to live forever?" You're just like you have to go along with it. And the thing about it too is what's really nice is it's so Queen. And I think you know it's just you're right. It's just you've been listening to Queen this whole time, and it's just the big guitars and the operatic uh, lyrics and Freddie Mercury's high falsettos. It's just so Queen, and it's so them. And and the Flash theme is, I, I could just mention it now, uh, was something they, they frequently played at their concerts post um, the Flash Gordon movie. Um, they would usually combine the main Flash theme and the battle-slash-hero theme into basically one big performance. Um, but it was a, a, a favorite of, of some fans at the Queen concerts. Yeah, so. absolutely. Cool, 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 cool. And that's basically mostly the the production, and the movie comes out in 1980. And uh, well, I mean, is there any other stories of how Dalton got got involved? Oh, or? Well, well, Dalton. Um, I guess I should say so. Yeah, so Dalton was very much that again that Shakespearean presence that De Laurentiis wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, that that big theater experience, and and Dalton's whole again, like I said in the beginning, like Dalton's whole thing was like this was a movie that was very much like this was the point where he had to decide just for himself. 
do I want to be doing movies or do I really want to just go back and focus on theater? Mm. And so, again, Flash Gordon was totally different than anything he had done on the stage. You know, very different just in terms of production, in terms of the, the big the, the look and the feel and the tone was very much different than any, anything he had done on stage, uh, whether it was Shakespeare or, uh, you know, it's just another kind of play. And he was just someone who just, he wanted to go all in on it. And it very much was, this was, you know, the start of, of him basically looking at himself a little bit more as a film actor. Because um, like I said, at that point, Flash Gordon, he had start, started kind of his American kind of Hollywood career. He had basically done theater and some BBD, BBC television. Really not much to say, but he was still a notable name in the theater. Like that's the thing about Dalton is that even from, you know, from young age, he had that initial hype. Didn't really transition it right away into a film starring career, decided to focus on the theater. But even then, even when he does Flashcorn, I mean, one of the reasons that he and Brian Blessed are both, you know, asked to do the movie is because they were mostly theater actors who were, you know, big theater stars, big, mm -hmm. you know, West End stars, as it were, not Broadway stars, but kind of like an old school nature where, you know, a lot of the early 30s and 40s, a lot of those actors came from the stage and, you know, would be doing Broadway, you know, like James Cagney was someone who would constantly do Broadway and then, you know, do a bunch of the biggest movies, you know, ever. But, but Dalton was very much like, he was still a notable name, and but this was his, you know, a, an opportunity for him. And, you know, because it's also like, despite this movie not having the biggest budget in the world, um, the director kind of infamously said it's it was kind of, um, in, in some ways, it was the most uh, improvised $20 million movie ever made, um, which was kind of expensive at that time, but not the biggest budget um, in the world. But it was kind of like a bigger, a little bit bigger budget thing than he had ever done. It was a bigger production. It was a sci-fi thing, which he had never done before. Um, and it was just like Dalton saw this as a different opportunity for himself. Um, and, and something that, again, just, and I, I can't say this for certain, but again, I just look at it as something that he looked at the script. He's like, I'm going to have fun with this. Mm -hmm. And I think because it's like, really, Dalton just seems to embody the joy of acting. Even if I, you know, sometimes it's like, whether he likes the celebrity of being a big actor can be debated. I think that definitely comes into his like leaving bond in some ways and kind of him going a little bit quieter post bond and post rocketeer, like a little bit quieter in his career after that. Um, but at the end of the day, he's someone who just loves acting and loves the theatricality and loves, you know, putting on a performance. And I really just feel like just everything I've read about him is that he looks at a script like flash Gordon, he sees his role he says, I, I, I can do a lot with this. I can have a lot of fun with this. And it just feels like that's where he was uh, at that point. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's, uh, get in the, let's get into this movie. Go Flash. Flash! All right. Uh, Talk about yeah, Flash Gordon. Uh, like how, so how, how should we start? You know what? I'm going to start. I'm going to start this because I may say something really bold, Nick, and I may yeah. just have to get it out there. This may be crazy, but this may be a perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
so good. No, okay. It's no, but so yeah, entertaining. Hear me out. Hear me out for everybody. Like, I and I legitimately mean this because I, I think it, it this way. This movie is thoroughly entertaining. It is funny. It is exciting. The special effects are very good. Like, you know, for the time, but hold up very well. Like, in the context that you have to remember of the time that it was it was made in, uh, the whole... It's also ridiculous, but in all the best ways, so you do have to meet it at that level. Um, but it, it's just so... Uh, but so confident in it in itself in the tone it is it doesn't it, it doesn't uh compromise like the tone it is but in the same way it doesn't compromise like the uh the um sincerity of like some, what some of the characters are going through it, it like it, it it maintains that level of sincerity while also maintaining that perfect level of levity too and the levity is just like the levity and the ridiculousness is so absurd but then there is this layer of sincerity that makes it all work and to the point that it really is i was thinking about this it's quite a timeless film yeah because as i was why because i've actually been very open to a lot of the films that we have watched and like you know how, how could you uh, how could you make a how how could you make remake this movie today or how how could you make it because I think some of the movies we have watched have been ripe for you know a reboot or a remake or or what have you but almost because like because but then I had a hard time with this film because well anything I would do with this film other films have kind of done right with this as a reference point yeah so you could just watch this movie. And it holds up. Yes. Like completely. Mm -hmm. And it's odd because it's the same. You know what it is? It's the same exact experience that you were witness to on this. It was my same exact experience with the Batman 60s Adam West series. Yeah. Where my entire knowing of this front of that series and this Flash Gordon movie was that it's good, but you know, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a dumb. 80s movie and you have to kind of like meet it at that level uh-huh. and like you know it's, it's kind of like it, it, it's dumb and if you were going to remake it you got to kind of like you know uh you know do like a, a like a better more serious version of it so I, that's kind of like the vibe i kind of went in and you know I'm, I'm all for like you know a hokey uh sci-fi film yeah but then when you watch it it's kind of like oh no 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 they know exactly what they're doing and there's no like this movie isn't compromised in any way it's very much this absurd comedy driven like space opera yeah and it's phenomenal mm-hmm. I, I I can't speak any more highly of it like it was just from beginning and it wasn't even a lot like for be even the things that I thought I was going to criticize I was like yeah, but I don't think I like take that like because I mean there was a moment where I would say like and this is kind of like moving ahead where the only thing I kind of criticized about it was the character of Flash Gordon himself. Yeah. But then as the movie kind of went on, I'm like, yeah, but like I kind of just like it the way it is. Oh no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, like I mean, top marks on 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 Absolutely. this on this film for this, me. This is gonna be an easy contender for the top of best movies I saw in 2020, not from 2020. This is just a joy of a movie. Um, just pure, fun, colorful, entertaining, ridiculous nonsense. But like you said, like there's a, a actual sincerity 
to the to the events and the movie really just kind of gets you invested in sort of these characters and these kind of big ridiculous personas and and the world of it and no there's no higher praise of a movie and you know that i do this i like watching movies over and over again i like really taking in the movie and there's no higher praise for a movie that i immediately want to watch it again i've been listening uh, to the soundtrack to the queen score Mm-hmm. And what's very distinctive about the Queen score, and I forgot to mention this in the in that part, but I can mention it now, is that the each of the tracks just feature straight up dialogue from the movie, and not like you know, like sometimes the soundtrack will have like dialogue as like additional little tracks, or maybe at the beginning of a track. No, it's just like the score, and then you'll just hear like Brian Best be like, "Gordon's alive," like the stuff like that. And as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, I want to watch that scene again. I want to see this again. I want to go back to this. And it's like immediately like I just want to take it all in again because it's just so it's just so pure joy. Like everything about the movie is just like you just inject it into my veins. Yeah, there, it's it really it really is good. And I would actually say that it's very well made as well. I, I think my only real criticism of the movie was that um, I, I think that the only place where it suffers a little bit is um, some scene to scene editing. Yeah. Um, that there, there's a little, there are times when it's just like, because it's like going back and forth between like a plot, a plots and B plots. And, yeah. and in some ways, like, and there are some beats where, Oh, I feel like we skipped a beat there. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's the moment where our Zarkov character, like, like we thought that his memories were erased, but then they weren't erased. So th- there's little moments where yeah. I was like, was a scene cut or so? Th- th- there are things like that. Right. So, um, so, so okay, maybe not a perfect film, but right. it's like, but that was like really, but like just from the presentation of the movie, like. You know, it opens up on like kind of like this, like you know, the bad guy who ends up being, you know, uh, Ming the Merciless, yeah. like you know, uh, kind of l- looking kind of like through like his telescope at Earth and doing, and they're doing the classic like, there's a there's a planet of this sector they call it Earth, and and then he's like, yes, I do like to play with my prey before I take it down. <laughs> like, right, it's like, are you gonna destroy the Earth today? No, I'll save that for later. Right. Like the play before Annihilation. So so they open it with that and then it opens up into the Flash Gordon theme and then the the title sequence yeah. which is just like all the images from like from just the cut comic to the, strip. yeah cut, like cut to the music of the comic strip and yeah. And it just it just it hooks you in like immediately, with, like, immediately yeah. what it is and, and it's I, like cuz it's, it's also like well then it's done. also cut into like uh, Ming's like a console and it has like just buttons for like earthquakes yes. and, and tornadoes and, and hot hail. And I was very confused, but then hot hail is literally just like lava hail right. essentially. But basically it's like, and then it's like kind of going all these things for earth. Um, while like, again, it's still like the theme songs playing. It's still cutting like flash. Oh, and, and like, it's just so good. And, and so that stuff is good. The production value on the movie blew me away. The sets in this film are so good um like um one of the uh we actually watched a behind the scenes feature at uh by and this shocked me uh by my favorite artist and comic book artist alex ross yeah um who basically just kind of did like his own little kind of review of the film essentially 
Um, but one of the things that he mentioned was that the movie excels at there's no really like like modern earth basis for any other than the vernacular and like how people are acting. Yeah. The the world that he goes into in into this film and all the planets are so alien and so and they just plop you right into it mm-hmm. that it, it just really feels like you're in a different like reality entirely. Um so all so all that stuff kind of works. Um like I said the score, uh the the directing and and this was the thing I was most impressed by the special effects. The special effects in this were so good. Um, and again, dated to the point of okay, they're doing green screen work during this time period. Which yeah, but, but for what it is, like like as ridiculous as they look, the the Hawkmen look pretty decent yeah. flying around yeah. like they they did a pretty good job the the blending of like the models and the and the backgrounds was and excellent him I flying love, on the stuff is great i like, love the background work like it's classic like 80s like kind of that um sort of poppy art but like color like again like the kind of clouds that they're through like the when when they're kind of flying through the city at the end um for the big battle uh, and just kind of you see the buildings and just kind of the painted backgrounds. It's just a very specific look, but it just looks so. It's just you feel it. You feel that look. You feel that it looks this. You f- just looks great, right? It and just and looks again. I love when a movie is colorful. Like it. it, it oh sure. Especially like within. What listen? Like we do have colorful movies in this in in this era, but you know there's so much kind of the same kind of sleek, bland, like kind of like dark greens and, and browns and stuff that like when a movie's like colorful like when you when you have like a Thor Ragnarok and it's something like really pops and you yeah, can, you can I, definitely and I, I think it was definitely like Gunn and like the Guardians films that kind of like bridge that gap and then yeah. now because especially like when you get to volume two where it's like super colorful and yeah. calling back to the Jack Kirby stuff but I think those films and then and then it was ultimately like a like and I, I know we keep mentioning Taika and Ragnarok, but this is like the most clear like reference point connection for that. to it, yeah. But well, you can definitely tell that you there's can, a, you can definitely tell that there's a little bit of a connection between Flash Gordon and Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah. Well and, and but that's kind of what was like timeless about it because I'm watching this film again, and here is the thing. I like like to be I, I don't like to give the label of you're watching a movie wrong. Even though I have said that, but it's like, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I don't like to say it, but I did have that thought with this movie when I did. I do remember the only thing I heard about this movie or one of the many things I've heard was that somebody said like, oh, yeah, Flash Gordon is fun, but it's kind of goofy. So if you would remake it now, you'd have to like get rid of like the dated goofy stuff. So I was kind of like, all right, so it's dated goofy stuff. But then when you watch this movie, then you're like, oh, no, no, no. If you f- say that, then you're watching the movie wrong. Yeah, because. And the only reason I say that is because, well, no, it's not a serious movie that goofy stuff is getting in the way. This movie is a, it's a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else it's to put de- it. No, that's De Laurentiis' and, vision and, and 100%. Here's, and here's the thing I will say that is the, you're either in or out on the movie, to, like tone-wise. Yeah. And it's at this point, because I would even say in the first, in the opening, mm-hmm. you have all the business with, and by the way, great character introductions i i think like you know with our our two leads or with a, fl- a flash and um dale yeah. uh that that's fun uh one of the one of the best characters in the film is uh, zarkov uh okay who, yeah yeah and, we'll talk about and, yeah. but the reason i say that is because 
even when you're introduced with Zarkov, it, there there is a certain amount of um right of uh comedy yeah. with that character. Yeah, so Zarkov like so basically kind of how the movie is is that Flash Gordon, this famous New York Jets football player, uh is kind of traveling and he kind of meets uh Dale Arden who in this version is a New York travel agent. Um she's a character that originally was just like a girl has had different versions. She's been a journalist. She's been a scientist. This one is that kind of thing. But they're traveling together, and you kind of get the introduction of like, okay, Flash is this famous football player on the cover of Time magazine. Dale kind of ha- is like a little bit of a feisty, but still has kind of like fear of flying, even though she's a travel agent. All this weird stuff is already happening, and then you get introduced to Zarkov and his and his assistant, where the hot health comes through the the the, the ceiling, and. Zarkov's assistant like wakes up, looks at the time, and he like wakes up Zarkov, and it's like there's no sun. It's eight o'clock in the morning. And there's no sun, and then immediately like you know they're like, off oh my god, the okay, wait, and then just to interrupt real quick, this is when I was like, oh, this movie was written with my sensibilities. This yeah. was written for me because then he's like, well, but the moon is like not like on the right axis or something. He's like, it must be a mistake, and then Zarkov's like, it's not a mistake. It's an invasion. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. I got to say this now. Okay. So, Topol is one of those people that I kind of knew before the podcast. Like, I kind of knew him as, like, very vaguely as, like, oh, like, the fiddler on the roof guy. Having seen him in this and in uh, For Your Eyes Only, I'm, I love Topol as a performer. Like, just, yes. he's, he's got, like, Everything about him, just as a presence, especially as kind of, he gives everything such a weird energy, and it works in both of the movies we've seen him in. Mm-hmm. In as like kind of the 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 tough ally that's again gives that weird little positive energy that boost and plays really well for Roger Moore in that movie. But in this movie, man, he's just he's he gets some wild stuff. In oh this yeah, movie. no, he he's exceptionally good. Like he he's just he's super funny. He's like. He's like, well, we have to go into the the rocket, right? And then he kind of like, then when the guy doesn't want to get in the rocket, right, then he pulls like, out the gun, right? Because he's basically like, again, this is, and this is all stuff. What's funny is that this again, this is all stuff that's in the original Flash Gordon comic strips. So basically, he's like, all right, I've built this rocket for such an occasion when this invasion finally happens, when they finally attack us, we can go in this rocket and stop them, or meet them, or, or make peace, or whatever. And the assistant's like, no. That rocket's never been up anywhere. I'm not going into that. And then immediately Zarkov's like pulls out a gun. He's like, "You're gonna get in that rocket, man." And then eventually the the how it kind of ends up is that well, what well, no, but but you're skimming over the funny part of that where then the assistant like runs away and then Zarkov's like, "What?" Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like what? What? With the gun pointed. It, it's just like so. That's that. And then it leads uh, yeah. into eventually because of all the the hot hail and all the weird stuff that Ming's causing, uh, the. Uh, basically, um, it causes everything that happens causes the pilots of Flash Gordon's plane to disappear and basically get disintegrated. And so Flash and Dale basically have to like land the plane blind, and they eventually crash into Zarkov's um, his lab. Lab, yeah. And Zarkov, we've already established too, is he's a, a basically someone who was fired from NASA for all of his crazy. Yeah, there, there's some good background exposition of like he's so there's like, kind of like a madness to him that we we're not really sure like what we well should I, I should say he he's presented as a mad scientist type and the background exposition is like he's a disgraced scientist yes 
Um, and then it, you know it's one of those things where it turns out that the, he he may have been onto he, been more. Onto it, yeah. So eventually they end up in the rocket, and then they they lift off. And, and you're they, and when you're watching the rocket like go through like again the clouds into Ming's si- the Ming city and stuff like that, you're immediately just like kind of taken in, right? Like by just just the the world and the presence again effects of the time but hold up yeah. I, I think but anyway so the, the what what i wanted to say was that all of that stuff there is some humor and it's funny but you you kind of almost have this sense of like okay well this is just some of like the the human stuff and this is your one of your comic relief characters because zarkov is really only being the funny one so there's a sense where i'm thinking all right well they're they're going to get to the alien planet and then it, it's going to get be like you know super serious flash yeah. gordon and it may be cheesy because of that but no they're just cracking jokes like the entire time and like one of the and then i think the moment i was on board with the movie 100 percent was there's this huge eventually where they they are confronted with ming and his forces and they give some exposition of like who all these factions of, of yeah. characters are but all of the soldiers go and attack flash yeah and not only does Flash begin to fight them with tactics of a football player by essentially playing football with yeah. them. Like he grabs like a football shaped object and right. literally just like starts like, you know, shoulder tackling and, and do- dodging them like football players. Yeah, and, and then like Dale is like cheering him on like like a cheerleader, which yeah. was apparently something that was improv on yes. the day. Yeah. And while all this is going on, there's all these like funny like you know hijinks going on, and like like the side characters are tripping the guards, and like our uh, and our, the Hawkman, uh, the Hawkman leader uh, is Volton. Like, yeah, Volton is like he's like knocking him on the head while that's happening. But the best part was when it cuts to Ming and Clytus, and then Ming's like, he's like. Clytus, are you sure your men are on the right pills? It's like we should fire the personal trainer. No, we should kill the person. <laughs> yeah, we should kill the personal could, trainer. We, yeah. So then when the villains are doing it, you're like, oh, then you realize like, oh no, this movie is just funny. Yeah. It's a funny movie. And I, I kind of want to go back to just one moment earlier because like you're kind of saying that thing where it's like, yeah, it's kind of fun, but there's nothing really, like, the gun thing was maybe the most ridiculous thing that happens. But then when they're being like led into the chambers and there's like this little like camera. Oh, eye, yes. And yeah. then right behind them, like you see them, they're like kind of walking there. Like they're kind of talking in like quiet and they're like kind of like, oh, maybe we can like meet them or like shake their hands. We can kind of make peace. Then like this, like behind them, you see like this green creature. And then all of a sudden the voice comes on. Stop there, lizard person. You cannot escape. <laughs> and then they just disintegrate the lizard person and immediately like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, it, I, I, I really just want to dissect the humor of, of this because I was not expecting it to be nearly as funny yeah. as, as it was. And it's genuinely funny. It, it's it very, is very funny. It's a very funny movie. It has... What movie was I talking about? Re- I feel like I was talking about a movie on the podcast recently where one of its strengths was that... That... The, there was no really big distinction between we have to take this seriously versus we have to take it funny. Mm-hmm. Did, was I, do you remember? I, I remember saying that about some, like a filmmaker or about somebody on, on the podcast. I, I, I can't remember uh, yeah. who it was. But but I, I, I kind of thought about the, that way with this film because I think the key to this film is that everybody is being sincere like just from a story wise like 
you're like like the the two princess the two the two princes like with the like you know the the hawk people yeah and like dalton's character so dalton is playing vince baron yeah he's the prince of arborea which are basically these tree slash robin hood type of people and then we have brian brian bless as prince voltan who is part of the hawkmen is the leader of basically this like kind of like the army essentially of of Ming uh, and sort of they're kind of the warrior kind of race, right? So you have all of that, and it's basically like a movie where everybody in the movie is like acting the role as if like you know it, it's like a serious, not like a dark serious part, but they're just playing that role, and if they're in that situation, but the filmmaking and the writing of it has no qualms about making it funny too or finding the humor in those situations and i think that's like the key to it because i think a lot of people they do especially in in with modern day films is that people kind of get held up by that they feel whether they're right or wrong and sometimes i argue against this point too but they feel like all right there's serious stuff going on and then there's like humor layered into it or like they're just like spoon feeding us humor or, or whatever and i feel like it's gotten to a point where people almost reactively just react to humor that yeah. way that they mm-hmm. always think like it's just kind of like something that's masking a serious thing going on whereas like in in and I feel like that's how a lot of people look at this movie and that's why people look at it as like oh it's like goofy and dated but it's not it's like it's just like all the characters are being sincere in their parts it's just there's just jokes like it's one of those things where when you really watch the movie you never lose the sense that like gordon and dale and zarkov have to save the earth like they never really let the stakes of the film are always there and then you also have on the other side of that you you have their kind of issues but then it's also this the film does take flashes pleas to the rest of you know the people under Ming's empire to Baron and Voltan, like they're pleased to like team up. Like you can, you can beat this guy. Right. Like, you definitely have the resources to do it. It takes that seriously too. And I think it's one of those things where the humor is never at, at the expense of the characters. Like, especially when you look at like, like, you know, Dalton's character, Prince Baron has this kind of secret relationship with, with Ming's daughter. And that's always taken seriously. You also have like the bigness of of Voltan and the culture of the Hawkmen and kind of the warrior, the Viking nature that they inhibit. That's never you know not taken seriously. And I I I, I think that it's a it's a really a distinction. Like and you're 100 percent right. It's very much sincere in the stakes and the personalities and the arcs of these characters. It still kind of gives you enough for for that while also just being just genuinely funny. I think that's where I think that's where I rub up against like this argument so much is because I firmly believe humor, just because yeah. you're joking doesn't mean it doesn't mean you're not taking it seriously. Yeah, and it's 100% And I, and I am 100% on the team of the that. The humor is never really at the expense of any of the characters. And like the thing is like the other thing that happens too that they do very good at is they really showcase like the the scare like even if it's not scary the scariness of like ming's world mm-hmm. and you know it's like a world where you know he has a ring that's going to make dale you know start like making out with nobody mm-hmm. you know and then or like a machine that's going to like go like go through all of like 
Zarkov's history and like right, talk right. about his time like during like World War II and stuff and showcasing it and like having him basically watch all of his history backwards as it's quote unquote being erased it, like that is, and and Ming just as like a destructor like he's merciless he's Ming the merciless like he is merciless in yeah, everything but even that he does he is joking around and, oh, and, and like, there's jokes around Max him and, von Sydow yeah. as Ming incredible right, stuff like yeah. so much fun he's having a blast being the villain. Um, and it's just a perfect kind of like, you know, and means the perfect kind of villain for a Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Just like Flash just keeps somehow escaping all these situations and like Ming's first kind of angry, but more and more kind of enthralled mm-hmm. by actually having an opponent that's standing up to him. And it's such an interesting dynamic between the two of them, I think. And it really kind of showcases what makes that sort of the, the Ming versus Flash kind of rivalry kind of like iconic even within this movie right is because like there is such like a good hero versus villain vibe to these two um yeah i mean there and 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 i want to go back to the point where you were saying like it's never at the expense of some people but i almost like i would almost go against that because i even find that like they're not even afraid to kind of like like do a joke at the expense of a character, but in a very organic way. Well, like, that's what I, I kind of mean, where it's like it doesn't really detract or take away from any of those characters. They may poke fun at a character or may have a character do something that really kind of showcases like a fault of their own. Right. But it's never really like really takes away from, you know, what that character well, is. Because my the and here is so he, my initial criticism of the movie as I was watching it was everything is great except uh, Flash Gordon himself. Yeah, like it's just one of those things where it's just like you know they're really not doing anything interesting with the character. I, I, like his performance, and I probably would still say this: like his performance in the role isn't like anything to write home about for me. Right. But as the movie goes on, it's like, oh, him and Dale are dumb. Like <laughs> they're they're kind of just like dumb white people <laughs> like that are just kind of like in this situation they're naive. yeah I they're I, very yeah, naive yeah. like the thing is is like you know at the one point they're like you know it's a, it's got to be a dream like they've been there for like you know a long time it's like this gotta be a dream to wake up from because it's so insane but the thing about it's like i think really again that's like kind of what makes flash gordon what kind of makes him it within this movie kind of does make him an interesting character is that you know, because they present the whole thing where it's like he is like, you know, the the humanity is kind of like, you know, is what helps everybody else raise above it. But it really is just like the naivete of like him in this world and him sure, really sure. thinking that like, no, we have all team up together. Yeah, we're going to beat him if we all team up together. And maybe like, you know, everybody else has been within Ming's kind of grasp for so long that they just can't see that. But like his just sort of that kind of for lack of a better term, like just American, like blue-eyed, blonde-haired, kind of just, just that's what he is, right? And right. that's what he's going to be, and that's why he's kind of almost a perfect opponent to Ming, because and Ming sees that because there's this great scene, like later when when after Flash has gone through all this stuff, where Ming kind of basically confronts him finally and basically says like I basically offers him like Earth, like he can rule over Earth, and the whole thing about it is like. Ming basically says, like, you're, you're a hero. Don't you see that? Like, you know, you, you've got this quality about you that, that nobody else – it's like kind of intangible. Like, that's not the exact line, but that's, like, kind of the feeling of the scene. And it's such, like, a good descriptor of what kind of makes Flash Gordon just kind of fun is that he's just going to go in no matter what and basically, like, 
I gotta save the Earth. I gotta, I gotta get, and that actually reminds me of another thing involving Ming. That another thing that really makes this movie work and why the stakes are always maintained is because there is some thought put into some of the world and the villain's plan and everything. Because what could easily have just been like a, you know, he's pressing some buttons and creating a weather machine around the world. He, he's making, he's essentially creating a geostorm. Yeah, like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Another personal favorite of Will's. Yeah, he, uh, but he, he's he's pretty much destroying the world. And you could have just left it at that. But then later on in the movie, they reveal that like literally his whole plan is that he goes from planet to planet to basically put all these civilized worlds through like a testing period right. where he's like, I basically create like these giant storms that ravage the planet. And if like the planet's like, Oh, this is like a Tuesday for us. Then he's like, Oh, then I'll spare that planet. But if this planet, if a planet sees it as like the end times, then that or planet is kind of like, yeah. So basically like if the planet is kind of ignorant to it, then I'm ignorant to them. But basically like if the planet notices or if there's someone that like looks into it, mm. that's that's dangerous. Right. You know, that's dangerous to me, so I destroy the so planet. So it was just like a level of like And so and then it kind of implies that like Zarkov like knowing something was gonna happen right. is basically what doomed Earth in the first place. But it was a level of like, oh, like mature villainy that I did not expect from the movie. And mature villainy is like, oh, that's like an actually like thought out villain scheme. Yeah. Like I, I was not expecting like there just to be that scene. And then like you're right, like 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 side. I was just like, not everybody's just performing. Nobody's like really all that over the top. Everybody's just yeah. kind of like, yeah, yeah. Why? Well, well, what were you gonna say? Well, I mean, like I think. Okay, there's a little bit of over the topness the the Brian blessed as is as it or is that just like what he's bringing to the role? I kind of like, think it's like the thing is is like I think it very much is like slightly over the top, but it totally works for the character of Voltan and like the world of the Hawkmen because this is also the world of the Hawkmen is like they have like a a battle to the death platform mm -hmm. in the middle of like their dining room which has spikes coming out of it and like the Hawkmen can make tilts and stuff like that. Of course, it's like yeah, I guess of course like. That Voltan would just be like, dive! Like, like just this big voice, this big booming well, voice. He, that also reminds me of another amazing joke where somebody's like, he's like, uh, like where Timothy Dalton is like, you know, he's like, I, it's like, I challenge him to like a death match or or, yeah. or whatever, and then Brian Blessed is like. He's like he, somebody's like it's by the anxi your, your ancient codes like that if somebody declares like a death match you your people must honor that and see it to the to the finish and then he's like he's like do we have such a law a code he's like yes it is in our code he's like ah what a nuisance yes <laughs> like he's like yeah, it's part of Ming's law yeah. yeah yeah Ming's law and I just thought it was so funny because and again here's another thing about the humor that we don't see until really until something like Thor Ragnarok. That it was funny that it was something that I think was criticized by very few at the time was the move that movie just kind of threw out like a lot of the Asgardian Thor yeah. nature of it and then took a very much more um, yeah. modern like modern way of speaking and like the just like the jokes right. and the references of how people talked where mm -hmm. like people are just making like rock paper scissor jokes and like it was kind of like humor as if they were on earth but they're not on earth right but my point being is that it was almost for even more effective humor because then in a way all the characters just 
felt more natural and real and it was like an easier reference point that they're just talking like you and I would and then like the 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 comedy lands better. Yeah. And I felt that way with here where it's like even the villains who are supposed to be the most alien are cracking jokes or like having certain turns of phrases that we would just have on earth. Right. And it just makes the well, humor you, you work better. You have better. like like the 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 uh Clytus, like the main hen- like the main henchman of Ming, at one point when they're going through Zarkov's like history, yes. like Hitler comes on, and then he's like, "Well, that's the man who had some potential." <laughs> like that's the type of movie that this is. But it's just, and it's just like even the characters are just like like the the, the back and forth just seems so yeah. natural. There's mm-hmm. no attempt to try to make them like these big alien like creatures mm-hmm. other than like right. the outfits that they're wearing. Right. Uh, and maybe some of like the actions like the lizard men are maybe the most alien mm-hmm. of of the creatures. Like even like the when when he's like psychically like like rubbing like Dale and then he's like have you ever seen such a response and, yes. and Clyde is like no, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It's just—it's funny. I—I I also real quickly want to talk about Dale, um, because that's a character that could have gone sideways real quick. Yes, I agree. And this character starts off as like, um, you know what? This is a good example. This character starts off as um, what, what's that character's name? Willie from uh the second uh, from the Indiana Jones from, yeah, from so, Indiana yeah, Jones from, Temple of Doom. Mm, yeah, and actually is ultimately revealed to be more like Marion. Yes. For, as, as the movie goes right. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's two keys to this. The, the two keys are, because they do kind of like she's kidnapped and, and, and whatnot, but what they do that is smart is that they make her funny and capable and give her her own little kind of side plot that yes. she actually goes on. Yeah, and like her own escape. And right. Her, and, like, and like being actually, again, you've tried to talk about actually being kind of clever in her in yeah her yeah and, and i don't mean like dumb by stupid it's just like the naive thing is a better way of putting yeah, it yeah yeah but and the second thing is is that any of like the quote-unquote problematic things that you could have in this movie are really not felt as legitimate threats is no. that i found in the movie that even though they kind of like yes he's they're taking her to be in like you know his woman or ever but you never feel like that's actually right like a it's, there's nothing the act, like the thing is like they're they're again it's one of those things where they don't really act on the creepiness of it it's right. just more so like hey you're gonna take this <laughs> they're gonna take this green juice and it's gonna make you more agreeable right and like of course like she's not gonna take it like yeah because ming eventually tries to roofie her and she's like smart enough to be like no i'm not gonna do well, that well so this is what made that joke funny because I was like, okay, here's where we get into the dated stuff. But and then they're like, all right, it, it's like it, he, she's like, it makes you more agreeable, and he's like, or right, and just like weird stuff like yeah. it's like it, it's like oh, it'll make you not mind when you look back on it, like things like yeah. that. But then it's like implied that like it's just alcohol, yeah. <laughs> Because even the way she's like, she brings over the slave girl. She's like, oh come on, like cut loose a little, right? <laughs> like, it's, and it's like, yeah, we've, yeah. Because then she eventually like tricks the slave girl, in, right? Into and that's it. what made me love the character. That now she's becoming like this bad influence on yeah. like the slaves, getting yeah. them, getting them hammered, and even like she just escapes like stealing guns and stuff, and oh, from the horse guards, those yeah. weird horse people. Those are so... yeah. Those horse guards are basically like like. Like Palpatine's like red guard, but with like horse heads. But with like horse heads, yeah, or like that like mask. The worst sound when you kill them. 
So, so there's like that, and even like when they get into like the wedding at the end, like you never really feel like that there's like a legitimate creepy danger to well, it. I mean, so again, there, there's it's a the, levity it's to the it. Over the topness of like the vows, because like the pre again, this is at the end, like they're getting married. First of all, I gotta mention that Queen just decides to do like a rock and roll wedding march, which was like insanely amazing. That like even on like Ming's planet and Ming's empire, like Mongol, I think it's actually called. <laughs> Like that, they just still have the wedding march, and it's like like a bow, 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 bow. But any so anyway, so then they're getting married, and the priest is like, "Oh, do you take Dale to be like this Earthling Dale to be your 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 mistress of the hour?" And he's like, and it means like of the hour, of course, to do with her whatever you please. Oh, most certainly, uh, and you will not shoot her in the space. And then Ming glares at the priest, and the and the priest like. Until such a time where you know she outstays her welcome, right? Right. Oh yes, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's just great. And then the moment where like it, like Flash is about to fly into the building, yeah, and then so- she runs off like, "Go Flash, go, go Flash." <laughs> um, but it's just, but again, it's at that same thing where at this point, at the end, it's at the end of the movie, and 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 Gordon's taken over this like you know one of their major ships, and you know he's just basically driving it on his own because like you know. Voltan is basically like you're insane man it's like you know me Birdman. like i'm i'm gonna do this to the end like again that's just kind of right, inherent right. like all-american naivety but then there, he's going through the building and everybody's looking and then again it's just like perfectly where it's like ming's like gordon and and then dale's like flash <laughs> like everybody like knows it's like of course this dude is oh, doing it i don't know why i just remember this but we can't forget the infamous flash flash i love you but there's only 14 hours to save the earth <laughs> Perfect line. Perfect line. There's so many little bits and moments like to mention throughout the movie. So tell me more about this man Houdini. Yes. <laughs> or the whole little the weird little bit about like I have like they've changed the code, but I haven't changed. You have changed. Oh, I knew it was part of the Zenith like num- numerology. I haven't changed. Like that whole little triumvirate. Crazy stuff. When of course the line that you loved when uh, so one of the things, again, Dalton's character is kind of in this relationship with Ming's daughter. And um, eventually, like, Ming's flash is executed. And then Ming's daughter, like, basically resuscitates him and brings him to Arborea to basically, like, try to help a relationship between Flash and, and uh, Baron. And um, Baron looks at Flash. Like, the, the daughter calls in Flash. And then Baron looks at him and is like, Welcome back from the dead. And then uh, he like goes up to the girl. It's like, you're playing with fire. Like, I know you're into a lot of things, but I didn't think necrophilia was one of them. <laughs> yes. yes. Best screenplay. Yeah. Best screenplay winner right and here. I, I just, okay, so talk about Dalton as Baron. Yeah, like, yeah. I I knew from the first moment, he, like his first time on screen is the Hawkman, basically like Ming's having this big little like kind of get together with all of his like, you know, ruled people. And he's basically like, each culture will present to me a gift. Like, show me what gift you have. And then the the uh, the Hawkmen present this like big like ice crystal. Like they start like talking. This is the ice crystal from the planet. Blah blah blah. And this is that. And immediately like Dalton and his like Robin Hood men like charge into the room. And Dalton's immediately like all in. It's like they stole that from us. That was yeah. our gift to you. And I immediately knew like that's a man who no matter what he's given is 100% committed. Yeah. Like, he's so into that character. Also, real quick, I, I, I want you to get back to this point, but very excellent use of, like, just 
introducing you into the world and like just a very efficient yes. way of introducing basically three factions and then instantly telling you what their relationships are to each other yeah. that like here's your emperor and then this one's presenting a gift this other one's saying well they stole the gift and i just very good storytelling and then and like and even within that immediate scene just, just talk about real quick. Like they, they're against each other. That the Hawkmen stole from the the Arborea people. But then when the flash football fight happens, and you kind of see them like when when uh, Volton keeps hitting the guy in the head, you do see them kind of exchanging looks. And there's kind of a little bit of like, yeah, well, we all hate this guy anyway. Right, right. Like there's still that kind of connection there. But I I agree with you about Dalton. He's he's a really he's just a thankless actor in the in the sense that. You could look at it and like he's just like kind of like going through the motions of doing a Dalton thing, but by the end of the movie when it's like you know he's teaming up with Flash and you know you're in the third act of the movie, he you just you're just sold on the character. You don't see necessarily Dalton like he's kind of one of those actors where even though it's always him, he just the way he plays it, you're just you're just sold on the character. One of the things I was thinking about today, and it's not to say like to get my point first. I would have loved if I could like time travel cast an actor into a Marvel movie. I'd love to see like this era kind of younger Dalton just like be in like like a major role in like a Doctor Strange or like a thing. And I still think like modern day Dalton would be great, mm-hmm. but it's just like just kind of that like strapping young, this kind of wide eyed kind of not you know he's not young, but like younger Dalton just like in a see, Marvel like, movie. Like, but but I think one of the things that makes this a good movie to talk about Dalton in. Because, like, frankly, my my go-to may have been The Rocketeer, but I'm glad you mentioned this. Because while I like Dalton, there is the sense where he's always going to be that he's better in, like, one of these side roles that ultimately steals the show. Yeah. And, like, like if you put, like, Dalton in a Marvel movie, I could see him being, like, maybe not Doctor Strange, but, like, Mordo. Well, no, that's, what, some, I, that's yeah. what I meant. Like, just, like, a villainous role, a side role, like, one of those things. Because right. I think he, he is – no, you're right – I think like Bond is his real, true, like best leading performance for me. Just in t- when I've seen him in the sure. performances, yeah, I would agree. But like when he really is playing, like again in this movie, when he's playing off of the world, or like Rocketeer, when he like when he has that scene with uh, Jennifer Connelly, um, and even when he's playing against Rocketeer at the end of the movie, like that stuff's great. And in uh, Hot Fuzz, when he has like the whole, you know, his whole character in that movie is so much fun. Like he's really good at playing against people, mm-hmm. and I think like I would even say, like when I look at his Bond stuff, like I really like him in his scenes with, um, you know, John Reese Davies in The Living Daylights, and with with Sanchez, um, with Robert Davi in uh, License to Kill. That when he's kind of has this kind of again acting thing that he's playing off of, of other characters, and I think it excels here in in Flash Gordon, mm-hmm. like when he's. When he has this, when Dalton has the scene, you know, because he's kind of like he doesn't trust Flash, he doesn't trust, you know, even though he loves me, he's always doesn't trust her. Kind of jealous of, of what Flash is bringing to the table. So basically, he like, you know, even though, you know, he's given to, you know, him, he like puts him in this cage and basically like, well, I'm gonna. The Arborea people have this like tradition where you put your hand in like a stump and there's like a creature in this. There's like kind of this slug creature. And if it bites you, it basically presents like this madness. Like you're, you're injected with a poison that's going to kill you, but slowly and give you madness. And then basically you beg for, you know, Dalton to kill you essentially. And so he's going to trick Flash into performing this 
the kind of like competition wise of putting your hand in the thing and then they're going to basically like flash is going to like have to kill himself because he's you know right going to be infected with the madness but again even with that when they're kind of playing off each other and that and kind of the the chicken and then the kind of rock paper scissors nature of that it's just dalton lights up when he's playing off of somebody and 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 his his strengths as an actor he gives a lot as a performer i think too and I think his strengths and actor really show in those types of in those those types of scenes. I agree. Or even in the in the you know, and Dalton was very much even in Bond doing all his own stunts when when they're on the when they're on the um, the spike turntable thing, mm-hmm. and just like you know the fight that they have, it's you know again Dalton puts his all his energy into it, and it's great. Another another great kind of um, another great thing that you had mentioned was that tree stump scene and the 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 pit fight with the spike pits even that that scene is littered with humor a little bit but one of the keys to this movie is that it has all those moments where the threat and the danger of what's going on is, is very is directed very well and feels like real danger mm-hmm. and even at its lightest like because there is some levity during like the pit fight scene but like you know, you can maybe count like the more serious scenes on like your hand, yeah. but the fact that they're in there really kind of like ground the movie enough. So there's like that, uh, there's like those two scenes, and then there's like Ming's final moments at the end of this film, which you know that is as most serious as like you know it gets. And then like the the conversation between Flash and Ming, and it was just kind of like an example I was thinking yeah. of of like you know um you know it, it kind of it, in in many ways the more i talk about it, it kind of reminds me of like definitely like that first pirates movie mm. where mm. it's a very funny fun entertaining movie but like the threat and the danger of everything is played pretty straight yeah. but um or it, it's like played by the actors pretty straight but the direction and like the the nature of it is played um with with a um certain level of levity yeah. uh that that i think is uh, great um, but yeah, um, I, I was trying some, some like minor notes, yeah. um, that I had, I did think it was really funny that the, one of the final moments was improv cause they didn't know what to do. At right. The end yeah. Of the day. So this is actually my, and, and uh, this is an amazing cut too. Like even it is, it's on the soundtrack cause it's cut exactly. And I love it. We're basically like, they've basically like, you know, flash drives the, the ship into the, Ming's castle essentially yeah, and impales and, like, him. impales Ming and even in that moment he offers Ming like you know a chance to like redeem himself and like you know basically like spare his his life and then Ming basically like no I'm why what no I'm not gonna be doing that so then he basically like kind of disappears dies and then uh and it's also at this point there's like a, a literal countdown of like you only have 14 seconds now like everything's happening you have 14 seconds to save the earth and so basically what's going to go on is like while Flash is like, you know, and the Hawkmen are kind of doing the as an outside thing, Dol- um, Baron, uh, Zarkov, and uh, and uh, Ming's daughter are all kind of like sneaking around trying to basically like stop everything Ming's doing. And at one point I will say Dalton has a very Bond like up against the wall with oh, the gun. Yeah, very, yeah. very Bond-esque. Oh my God, dude. Remember when he ripped the glasses off of that one robot? Oh, and then the guy had no eyes. That's one of those moments where I really do believe this is a timely, a timeless film because that's like a Rick and Morty joke. 
You know what I mean? Like, yes. Because that it was so. It's mm-hmm. such an oddball joke because it's literally like there's no attention brought to it at all. He's like, just go to one of the robots, and then while they're talking, he's like, there's no way you'll stop us. And then you think that he's just taking glasses off of a right. robot, but it ends up being his eyes, and then like he has like wires coming out of his socket, and then and and he then, starts screaming, and, and then all the other robots like faint, like they're Dal- shut off. Even Dalton's like, what the? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. And it's just, it's it's perfect. Yeah. It, it's just but basically so funny. like. Then at the end, like the like I the like camera robot that like has been following him around so that like Ming can see everything that they're all scared of, by the way, which I thought was really funny. Yeah, but they're all like, (laughs) "Flash, don't move!" And then it's Zarkov on there, I think, or Zarkov for one of them. Oh, I thought it was just the 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 camera. I thought it was just the computer. Yeah, it was just basically like, "All hail Flash Gordon! The Earth has been saved!" And then basically, like again, they didn't know how to end it. So basically, Sam Jones came up with, he throws like the sword he has at the side. He jumps up right to the camera like, yeah. And as soon as the yeah comes, it cuts to the theme. It's like, yeah, he saved every one of us. It's an amazing cut. Like it's one of the, all, it's like an all time great cut. It is. Um, but that was, that was really fun. Um, I do like, I did like, I mean, we talked about, um, we talked about a little bit about Glytus, but he, Clytus is this metal face, like Dr. Doom looking guy. Clytus was awesome, and my only selfish thing was that he just kind of like was just like killed yeah. pretty unceremoniously, right. and so, I was so bummed. Right, but I liked him, and I even liked that like kind of the the other woman though. Like, okay, I was gonna mention her. Her character's name was Kayla, or like yeah. uh, General Kayla. She was awesome. Yes, she was like she had this like evil sexiness to her yeah. that was like so. And then but like, like, but then like just you really. You just really bought all the villains yeah. in, in the film, and she like, but also when she gets killed, she just like melts. Yeah, yeah. But then also again, because I've listened to the soundtrack so much, just what's ingrained in my brain is just her line where it's like, when when Flash is coming in, he's like, again, he's like, there's a like another soldier, and it's on the screen. It's like General Kala, like Flash Gordon approaching. He's like, what do you mean, Flash Gordon approaching? That was awesome. Oh, and then she has to make this announcement. Because they, they, all the weapons have to be like, oh, weapons on Flash Gordon, like basically, like he, he has to be dead. And then she makes an announcement, it's like, ladies and gentlemen, do not be alarmed. Uh, <laughs> the weapons are constantly firing in celebration of Ming's wedding. Do not be alarmed by all the weapons. It's so fun. Yeah, no, she, and, she was great. I, I loved her. I just loved her presence. Loved her look. Loved and I can't. About okay, her. I, I know I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but like, all of Brian Blessed's performance as Walton is actually incredible him just yelling like everything he's yeah. like what you'll be eaten alive all that sort of stuff no he he he, he, he he was great i mean again it, it was one of those like real world sensibility things that was brought to it and uh just and everything about it and they didn't they and they tastefully timed out all the like you know he doesn't want to be a good guy because he's scared, but then he comes to the side of good, and I, and I found all that to be v- very believable in this like kind of like and again, Saturday it's, morning it's, it's cartoon the way. Whole, whole like thing where it's like his Hawkmen will follow the rest of his Hawkmen will follow him yeah. wherever he goes. So also even, apparently he has like a daughter that is kind of like we see her, but then never again. Yeah, I'm sure head. that was something that was kind of yeah, yeah that that, that was basically a like odd. Um, but basically like when when they're all attacking and like the Hawkmen basically just generally sacrifice themselves and. It is kind of like really into that world again where it's just like these that's the culture. It's just like where Voltan goes, where their leadership goes, they will follow. Mm. And once they're on the side of Flash, there's no stopping them. 
And as much as corny as it is, I love that it literally just comes down to friendship saves the universe. Mm -hmm. It's literally like it's funny because like they imply that the whole like like flash at some point he's like we should work together or teamwork and then like somebody just doesn't understand the concept of that like, yes i forget I, I forget if it's, it's like the princess no no it's it's uh it's ming's daughter yeah 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 like, like yeah. what does it mean like team or like whatever i forget what the yeah what, the, what term he exactly uses but, like. but in as goofy as it is i actually found it to be a pretty like fun interesting way of presenting that that like that they're so under the thumb of this empire that the notion of just like, well, let's team up with each other is just not even a consideration. So, I mean, it's goofy, but I like it I, for, for this movie. I, I, I think it works. Also, Dalton gets the ones one point, you know, in his Dalton, perfect Dalton voice is like, freeze you bloody bastards. <laughs> like also one of the best lines. Get the bullworms, not the bullworms. Yes, I was about to mention this to you because that was because Ming's eventually like they figure out that Ming's daughter is the traitor that like you know saved Flash. I don't know. And then like, and again, it's all guys like no matter like, and even Ming's like again merciless to his daughter. It's like Ming will have your head for this, and Ming's like right there, basically like yeah, well, no, like you're the trait, you're a trait, you betrayed me, daughter. Like come on, I'm gonna. Get the bullworms. Come on. Yeah, I I just thought I don't know why stuff like that makes me laugh so because it just like again it's like again it's ridiculous but the characters are it's just treated in a way that the characters know what's going on and it makes that world feel real and fun. So just when it's just like get the bullworms. No, not the bullworms. <laughs> so I I love it. I love it. Um this is a great watch. Yeah, it's so much fun. I, so I was just, I was just gonna. Did you have anything else? Because I was just gonna wrap up what I had to say about it. Um, I'm so glad I chose this. Like, I'm just so glad that we got to watch this, and just it, it taken. You know, and again to keep it back to the Dalton thing. It's just like, just more, just of my love for Dalton, and just love him in this movie. But genuinely speaking, this is just such a treat, and just so much fun. So. You're very much right. It's just a movie that's easy, like timeless. Just you can watch it at any point, and just it just feels right. It feels like this movie is what it needs to be, despite everybody else kind of having those issues with it uh, of possibly being too silly. It's just like this is exactly what this movie needs to be. Well, and to kind of like wrap it up on like that thing about the timeless thing from my point of view, uh, and I'll mention it this way because I was thinking about like how would you remake this, and I was thinking about all the ways that I would kind of consider like well what are the different things that you could do and one of my things was like well maybe you could do a like all right have the same kind of general plot but i kind of like the idea that like dale and flash are just like kind of like these naive like young like kind of like uh dumb white people so it's like they come up into space and they could just be through this whole journey and then you could maybe do the more sincere serious stuff through the eyes of like dalton's character and then like all like the machinations of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but then i was thinking like yeah but that's just big trouble in little china like when you think about yeah yeah, i mean that's just what that movie is so then i was thinking well then you would just kind of like do this movie just with a modern setting but that's just thor ragnarok yeah so in a way, it's like, so this movie just kind of stands up on its own. Like, there's nothing to really change. Not that, you know, I, I'm not saying, like, oh, I'm, like, anti if you want to do it in a different way. and Like, feel free to. But 
it, it very much is to me. It's just one of those. It, it, it's an it's an instant classic. It's super funny, super fun. Uh, there's nothing really like dated or goofy about. I mean, it's goofy, but I I mean that is the type of movie mm-hmm. that it is. And I'm not even saying that apologetically. Like you watch it, and it's like, oh, this is supposed to be a tongue in cheek. Like again, I always go back to think of Batman the '60s. Uh, the the 60s Batman series where they knew what they were doing and this movie knows what it's doing and what it does is awesome. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention too though, it's like, again, it's just the type of movie it is. Like how, like Dale and Flash immediately like are just like going to marry each other like at the one point in the movie and but it just kind of works. It just kind of works with the. Well, that's what got me on board with those characters, where I'm like, oh, they they're kind of. And that's then, what I was like, oh, they're kind of dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then Dale immediately like like get your hands off me! I just got engaged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, all that all that works like gangbusters. And uh, then and then uh, of course, Flash Gordon even before Spock is like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah, a rational transaction, one life for billions. Um. But who is Harrison Ford in That's this a hard movie? question? Yeah, I know he's the he's the uh, he's the the coach or, or is the, he, he's the he's the uh, he's the owner owner of the Jets of, of the of the New York Jets. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then he's on the phone. He's like, "Flash, you gotta get here." Yeah, and he's the like, "Season's about to start. Where are you?" <laughs> um, all right, let's let's wrap this. Let's all wrap right, this so Flash up. Gordon uh, eventually does release. I said in 1980, it is a uh, official release date. Of December fifth, nineteen eighty, right at the end of the year, on a twenty million dollar budget, um, it made uh twenty seven million in North America and about forty million worldwide. Um, but it was one of again perception. It was one of those things where the movie was genuinely successful, but this was also at a point now it was in a post Star Wars age. And it very much was, you know, Star Wars was the biggest thing on the planet. You know, this is 80, 1980s, the same year as, you know, Empire Strikes Back, which solidifies Star Wars as the biggest thing on the planet, you know, and all these other, you know, we've had all these other sci-fi responses from to Star Wars and kind of, you know, Star Trek's back in the game again with, with the motion picture, taking it a little more seriously, you had the black hole and even like Moonraker kind of took this goofy sci-fi in that way. So really just... People perceived it like it didn't do as well as it should have. You know, like when you had like Star Wars and Moonraker making these millions off of being sci-fi stuff, you know, a paltry 40 million wasn't really going to cut it, even though the movie made money. Um, Reception was very much mixed for its time period. I mean, people just weren't, some people were into kind of the goofy nature of the movie. Others were very much like should have been more taken more seriously. Um, And there were plans for a full trilogy. Everybody that was in uh, the in Flash Gordon um including Sam Jones, Dalton, Blast all were signed on for a three film trilogy but the kind of again the perception that the movie did not do too well with the addition of Sam Jones walking out at the end of production and not doing his own um dubbing for the movie basically put all of that like took all that away and Laurentis basically went right into focusing on on Dune as like, okay, here's another chance for me to do a, a sci-fi mm. motion picture. Um, but the movie does gain a, a big cult following over the years, um, most notably among its hardcore fan base, um, the McQueen score. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I would say that is my entry point yeah. into this movie So the Queen score is probably the most notable thing. Um, fans of Flash Gordon in particular... 
really dig um, the Brian Blessed performance. Um, it, Gor- uh, Brian Blessed's line, Gordon's alive, was one of like an early like 80s version of a meme where basically like fans who knew the movie would basically like do that to each other. Oh, like, okay. Like, That's Gordon's fun. alive. Um, so, uh, you know what? I will say I do have one review that actually directly compares this movie to James Bond. Okay. Uh, it was uh, one of the positive reviews was the New Yorker's Pauline uh, Cal who described Flash Gordon as had some of the knowing, pleasurable giddiness of the fast-moving Bonds. The director, Mike Hodges, gets right into the comic strip sensibility and pacing. So yep. it's just kind of like kind of the goofiness of Bond and, and taking like stuff that, you know, from that Roger Moore era. I mean, this is right after Moonraker and right before For Your Eyes Only, which definitely does have some of those goofier natural elements to it. Um, and even Spy Who Loved Me to an extent kind of has that humor with Jaws and stuff like that. So I think there's kind of that. Uh, but the movie becomes, again, one of those early cult classics, does really big, eventually, unlike stuff like Home Video um, and stuff like that, and um, is kind of a... Uh, uh, has risen into like actually like modern reviews have risen on Rotten Tomatoes score like about eighty percent. So it's really gotten an appreciation for its kind of colorful nature, its humor, and kind of the performances and the commitment to the performances. Especially again with Blessed Dalton and especially people like uh, Max von Sydow's Ming uh, and the commitment he puts into that character. Uh, the film would also get a reintroduction into pop culture with the Ted franchise, mm-hmm. um, which is how we actually got this. I was movie. gonna say we we would it would be a mistake if we didn't mention how this got into our possession. This film was because, as you said, uh, was kind of brought back into popular culture through the Ted films, uh, in which the characters that's like their childhood favorite movie mm-hmm. so they they keep talking about it and uh sam jones comes into the mo- movie and then they do a bunch of like different uh references to the film and recreations of certain scenes from the films but the biggest thing uh that the reason we have it is that at best buy one day i noticed this triple pack of ted ted 2 and flash gordon in a pack called ted versus flash gordon in which the cover is a recreation of the flash gordon poster with the ted uh the teddy bear so uh you know it was just funny because it's like well you know you know three movies for the price of one you know you know i i get i get some chuckles out of the ted films but then i also had never seen flash gordon before and honestly it was worth the price and um, in terms of, it's one of those things, especially like film people very much appreciate it. Again, this is a favorite movie of one Edgar Wright, um, who said that the, sort of the visual dynamic of the movie was kind of one of his inspirations for, for Scott Pilgrim uh, versus the world. Um, but basically it is become very much like it, a truly uh, well-respected kind of cult classic in that sense. Um, so cool. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, that's Flash Gordon. Everybody watch this. Go watch it now. I do. Go find it. Watch it. I recommend Please it. Please do. I recommend it. Listen, I love people discovering movies. I, I just, we just showed a friend, uh, Texas Chainsaw 4, Next Generation, and uh, we've actually basically said you should come back over next week and watch this movie. So hopefully he does because I'd love to share this movie with more people. Oh, this movie? Yeah, Flash oh, okay. I was like, I thought you were like bringing texas chainsaw 4 into this i was like what does that have to do with this but i, I lost i lost the train i lost the train of thought i'm back <laughs> on board um so uh anyway so uh yeah so that's flash gordon uh hope hope you guys enjoyed this episode and hope you enjoy the movie if you end up 
seeing it. Um, but uh, so, and that will do it for this episode uh, of the Bonzo Podcast. Nick, do we know where we're going next, or do you want to talk about Ooh. what we're going to talk about next? We do. So, next month for Bond is April, um, and it's going to be a big month for us because we have a new Bond movie to to do. Um, so just to do talk about that first, we are going to do a review of No Time to Die, just as we did with uh, King of the Monsters last year. It'll probably end up working very similarly, where we put a review right at the end or right the you know right after opening weekend. We'll go see the movie at some point, put out our thoughts, give you a weekend to kind of see the movie, make your own thoughts, and then we'll put that review out. Uh, but just like with King of the Monsters, um, we will have a regular episode that same week, and. Our, our normal Bond April episode, um, I thought it would be the perfect time for us to take a look at another Bond actor in Daniel Craig. As, as we are ending the Craig era, we, we should celebrate the life and career of Daniel Craig. And we've always talked about that you know, we, want, we, want, we like seeing Craig having fun in roles, and we want to see Craig do more fun in Bond, but we like seeing Craig just have fun. And... I'm thinking, well, we should take a look at a, a recent Craig production where he's definitely having a lot of fun. And I know that he's having a lot of fun because he's talked about many times how he's had fun in this movie. We're going to take a look at the most recent Craig film before No Time to Die. We're going to take a look at last year's 2019's Knives Out. Uh, so this is all a nice way of Nick just saying that we're going to celebrate the career of Craig by watching a movie that Craig actually wanted to be in. Yes. Yeah, is essentially what you're Well, I saying. mean, but that's part, I mean, that's going to be part of the discussion is that, you know, seeing Craig in a different type of role. Right. And really kind of comparing it to, to you know, the, the Bond career. Because I do think there is a very much something to say about kind of the two sides to Craig's career, his Bond and non-Bond stuff. Cool, cool. Um, so, but next time is not a, uh, James Bond episode, it is a Godzilla episode, and next time, uh, for that episode, uh, we're gonna do stuff a little bit differently, um, in which we will be talking about a film, but unfortunately there will be no film to watch, um, and based off of my own interests and some suggestions from the podcast, uh, that the uh, listener base yeah. the, from the listener base, there was some interest into the unproduced nature of the Godzilla franchise, which there are many entries on there. There, there's a lot of there's a lot on that list of films that have not been produced and made, and we had talked about some of them on the podcast. But I thought, like, what did let's make an interesting activity about this of diving in to a film that wasn't made as if as the same way that we've been diving into all these movies. And what better movie that we have the most substantial material for, and that is the. Uh, um, and I keep on getting their last Elliot name. And Rocio. The Elliot and Rocio, um, written but unproduced film that eventually became the '98 Godzilla film. Uh, we are going to be looking at that unproduced 1994 uh, Godzilla film that um, that they wrote. And is we're untitled or just Godzilla. Uh, you know, I'm still doing the some of the research on, so the the name of it uh, still escapes me. But a lot of people consider it the ninety uh, the ninety four Godzilla, or as you can say, the possibly directed by uh, Jane Dupont. Yeah, there we go. Jane Dupont. Jane Dupont. Uh, so that's the. So I'm, we're going to. I'm going to be very curious to see what the thumbnail for that episode. And is and be. honestly, and and to to kind of give people what we're going to do. 
We are going to be actually not on air, but we are going to be off mic reading the script, familiarizing ourselves with what the movie was, and we're going to come back to you with our review of a movie based entirely off a script and some background information. So and I'm sure we're going to also have some fun maybe casting it yeah. and stuff like that. I <laughs> yes. think in like 1994, like yes. who would you cast in these roles? I think this is going to be a very unique and very fun episode. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so look forward to that. So until then. And it'll be easy for everybody to access because you can probably find a script somewhere yourself. Yeah. So you can even, again, have your own opinions. All right. Uh, so that's it. We're done. I'm done. You're done. Plug. All right, we have bonzillapod at gmail.com, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, facebook.com slash bonzilla007, like and subscribe, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Um, Again, we really appreciate all the love, and thank you guys so much for... um, We've had a couple people reach out to us about certain episodes we could do in the next couple months, and it's been very much like I'm glad you guys are enjoying uh, these alternate Bond and alternate Godzilla episodes because it's still so much fun doing this podcast. Absolutely. All right. Well, until then, I'm Will. And I'm Nick. And go Flash.